Hello and welcome to this week's message from Valley Church. Catch up on recent messages and find out what's happening in the life of church by heading to valleychurch.eu or follow us on social media. Enjoy the message. Good evening. How are we all? Take your seats. Once again, welcome. Thank you, Pastor Zed and Michelle, for stepping out 16 years ago and starting our church and giving us all a place to be and a vision to follow. We're grateful for you. And uh, church, let's never, be, um, let's never forget the privilege it is uh, when God blesses us with um, godly, um, uh, vision-filled, competent leaders. Uh, it's a, a gift from him. It's a mark of his blessing on our church, mark of his blessing on our lives. Uh, and we are always to be grateful for that in Jesus' name. Uh, this morning, Pastor Ed uh, spoke uh, from Psalm 78 and then from Acts chapter 4 and elsewhere about let the spirit fall. And tonight is almost like a, a part two. Tonight, I want to talk about putting legs on that. I want to talk about what we need to do as people if we're going to see God do everything that I believe he wants to do in us and through us over the next 12 months and into the future. One of the things Pastor had mentioned was this idea of, you know, you can be under the influence of alcohol or you can be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Either way, you might end up doing some crazy stuff. So better to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit because at least that crazy has got God's hand on it. And uh, all of us, I think, have got a little bit of crazy in us that God wants to bring out of us, something that seems like it doesn't make sense to you or the people around you or the world around you, something that we wouldn't do if God hadn't called us to, because I just think that we have a God who calls us to make trouble. We have a troublemaking God. And if you're taking notes tonight, if you want a title for your sermon, you can write down troublemakers, troublemakers. It's not about parenting. That's not what the sermon's about. A few years ago, Mel and I were at a museum in Berlin that commemorated the various uh, anti-Nazi movements from the era of the Second World War. Maybe you've watched the movie Valkyrie or you've heard of the Valkyrie plot to assassinate Hitler. Klaus von Stauffenberg, he was executed for a failed attempt on Hitler's life and he was executed in the courtyard of the very building that the museum uh, now occupies that shows off the incredible different movements that resisted Hitler and the Nazis in Germany in the Second World War. We saw the very courtyard Stauffenberg was executed in, and we walked through the rooms, walked through the building, and saw these tributes to these heroes who gave their lives for a cause bigger than themselves. Another movement that I'd never heard of before that trip to Berlin was called the White Rose. This is a non-violent, anti-Nazi-resistant student movement and uh, Sophie and Hans Scholl, brother, brother and sister, they fought with all that they had to reach students in Germany with the, the real evil reality, the truth that was really going on in the regime at the time with print, printed materials, with, with pamphlets, with leaflets, with all this kind of uh, information war. They were getting the information out there to the students and, and they were executed for high treason for what they did. These were the kinds of people who caused trouble in their day. Now, we might not have a dictator to overthrow, and no matter what you believe about our politics, we don't, uh, but, but we might not have a dictator to overthrow, but we are in a, a time of life where there is going to be trouble. 
and we need to cause the right kind of trouble as believers, as Christians. And I believe that all of us have a, a desire to live for a cause bigger than ourselves. Every single one of you was created to do something significant, something that outlasts this life, something beyond your ability to achieve that requires the power of God in you and through you to fulfill. But first, if we're going to do it, we're going to have to be willing to be called troublemakers. Let me tell you about a couple of troublemakers in the New Testament. Acts chapter 16, and then Acts chapter 17. Acts 16, talking about Paul and Silas, says one day, in verse 16, one day as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a young servant woman who had an evil spirit that enabled her to predict the future. Obviously, she earned a lot of money for her owners by telling fortunes. She followed Paul and us shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God. They announce to you how you can be saved. She did this for many days until Paul became so upset that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the, in the name of Jesus Christ, I order you to come out of her. The spirit went out of her that very moment. So listen to this. This is the key. When her owners realized that their chance of making money was gone, right, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them to the authorities in the public square. They brought them before the Roman officials and said, these men are Jews and they are causing trouble in our city. Everyone say trouble. trouble. They, are they are teaching customs that are against our law. We are Roman citizens and we cannot accept these customs or practice them. And the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. Then the officials tore the clothes off them and ordered them to be whipped. Chapter 17, verses 1 to 7. Same two, Paul and Silas traveled on through Amphipolis and Apollonia and came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue. According to his usual habit, Paul went to the synagogue. There during three Sabbaths, he held discussions with the people, quoting and explaining the scriptures and proving from them that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from death. This Jesus whom I announced to you, Paul said, is the Messiah. Some of them were convinced and joined Paul and Silas. So did many of the leading women and a large group of Greeks who worshipped God. But listen, some Jews were jealous and gathered worthless loafers from the streets and formed a mob. I love how it's written in the Good News Bible, it's worthless loafers. They, I'm just giving you insults that you can use here for free. Uh, they, they set the whole city in an uproar, it says, and attacked the home of a man called Jason in an attempt to find Paul and Silas and bring them out to the people. But they did not find them. They dragged Jason and some other believers before the city authorities and shouted, these men have caused trouble everywhere. Now they come to our city and Jason has kept them in his house. They're all breaking the laws of the emperor, saying, listen, that there is another king whose name is Jesus. The message got them into trouble. The message they proclaimed caused people to lose their livelihoods. The message they proclaimed caused the religious people of the day to get upset, the political people of the day to get upset, the worthless loafers of the day to get upset. Verse 6 in another translation says this, when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Turning the world upside down is going to cause trouble. It's going to upset things. It's going to cause trouble for people. Jason, this poor lad who was looking after Paul and Silas, had his home ransacked because he was associated with Paul and Silas. And friends, you and me, if we're going to see God do something significant in your life, in our church, in this world, we're going to have to be willing to be troublemakers and to hang out with troublemakers and to have trouble in our lives. In Jesus' name. Let's pray. And then let's see what it takes to turn you all into troublemakers. Father, we thank you for your word.
God, we thank you for the fact that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. And God, the, the, the powerful force that it is to speak into the deepest place of our hearts, we open ourselves up to it right now. Holy Spirit, we invite you once again to fill us, to speak to us, to testify to us about your word, about who Jesus is, about what you've called us to do. And Lord God, I pray that we would be the right kind of troublemakers for your kingdom, for your glory, proclaiming that there is another king. His name is Jesus. He does rule and reign over all authorities, and we are following him to the end. In Jesus' name, amen. So to turn the world upside down does take this willingness to be a troublemaker. Okay, you're going to have to rock the boat. You can't go with the status quo. You can't compromise. You can't conform. You can't be a dead fish that goes with the flow. It's not going to work. If you want to turn the world upside down, I'm not talking about breaking it apart. I'm not talking about damaging things. I'm not talking about being a mob. I'm talking about to rebuild it, to renew it, to renovate it. My wife and kids in January went to Germany for 10 days to escape me, I guess, you know, to, to, to go, do some ho- go do some home education in Germany. And uh, my task while they were away was to renovate our living room. And Mel came back and there was some complimentary comments and some work still to do. <laughs> but either way, either way, the goal was not to wreck the living room, the goal was to renovate the living room. But to do that, I had to cause a bit of a mess. Um, and we've cleaned it up since. But the, po- the point is this. It's going to cause some trouble if we're going to make things new, if we're going to turn things around and transform society and see our lives turned around and transformed. How many of you have got a testimony that when you said yes to Jesus, other people started saying no to you? Or when you started stepping out in faith, in obedience to God's call, there were circumstances in your life that all went horribly wrong. You know, when heaven breaks loose, hell breaks loose in response. And it's our conviction, our commitment to not allow the challenges of those things to stop us from determining in our hearts to run with that vision that we've been hearing about. I believe that every person alive wants to make a difference. Like it's it's hardwired into us. All of us want to do something with our life. We want to count for something. You might not want to, you might not be bothered about changing the world, but at least you want to change your world. You, know, you at least want to leave a legacy for your kids, right? You at least want to build a business that's going to really help people. You, you want to uh, write a book. You're going to want to write some music. You want to uh, teach kids. You want to be in a church. You want to have a ministry. You want to be the kind of husband or wife or whatever. You want to be someone who makes a difference in your world, right? You want to do something that actually counts for something that changes something and it's only going to work if we understand that there is another king over all of that there is another kingdom that all of that belongs to and until we submit everything to him and to that way of thinking and believing and acting those things will not be changed i believe this room is filled with people who want to live a life of resolute absolute defiance in the face of lies comfort conformity and compromise Every single one of us, that's the call, to be resilient in our, in our hatred of, our attack upon, our denial to, to, to receive lies, comfort, conformity, and compromise. There is another king who is Jesus, and he's calling us to be troublemakers, to turn the world upside down, to do something significant for him. I realized recently that um, I am older now than Jesus was when he was crucified. 
which is a scary thought. Um, I also heard recently someone say, you know the problem with today's preachers is no one wants to kill them. <laughs> problem with today's preachers is no one's trying to kill them anymore. Just let that one settle. But Jesus, in a few short years, he caused quite a stir. You know, he talked about Paul and Silas casting the demon out of the woman who was making her own as lots of money. Well, Jesus did a similar thing. He cast demons out of a herd of pigs. And they, I don't know, do you call them a herd? Group? A gaggle of pigs? Jesus cast out an oink of pigs. All the demons came out. And the pigs, these poor farmers, it wasn't their fault. The demons were in the pigs, probably. The pigs jump off a cliff, commit suicide, and all of a sudden you've got no pigs left. And Jesus has caused quite a lot of financial difficulty to these farmers. Right, Jesus was happy to turn things upside down, to be a troublemaker, to, to rock the boat, to get things shaken up so that God could do something significant. He publicly shamed rulers, religious and political of his day. Scholars agree that the disciples Jesus called, listen to this, we're all likely 20 years of age or younger, some perhaps as young as 15 years old. These disciples would perform miracles. They started the early church. You don't have to be old. You don't have to be very experienced. You don't have to know it all or have your life all sorted out. You just have to be willing to be a troublemaker, to be a disruptor. You have to have a, a willingness to defy lies and comfort and conformity and compromise. God has always used inexperienced, underqualified, but willing people. He's also used old people. Abraham was 100 Dave Parkinson was. <laughs> Moses was 80. But young people too. Joseph was the second youngest son of Jacob, who survived slavery and false imprisonment to become prime minister in Egypt. King David, before he was king, was the youngest son of Jesse. He killed the lion, the bear, and then Goliath. Josiah, a godly king in Judah, was only eight when he took the crown. Only eight. And he brought incredible reforms to the nation of Judah. He was this godly, righteous king that rediscovered the scriptures and got everyone worshipping God again. Esther, they think, could have only been 14 years old. Some scholars think only 14 years old when she became queen and saved the nation. This tells me that the only thing stopping you from doing something significant for God is you. It's not your age, it's not your experience, it's not your qualifications, it's not your past, it's not your upbringing. It's you. Are you willing to be a troublemaker? Are you willing to do whatever it takes? These people did whatever it takes to accomplish something significant. Sophie Scholl, executed by the Nazis in her early 20s for helping lead this resistance movement called the White Rose. She once said, stand up for what you believe in, even if you are standing alone. Stand up for what you believe in, even if you are standing alone. And facing execution, she said, I will cling to the rope God has thrown me in Jesus Christ, even when my numb hands can no longer feel it. God uses people who are just going to hold on to the vision, hold on to the cause, hold on to the mission, not give up, persevere, endure, even if no one stands with them. If God's called them, they're going to do it. And these people, the Davids, the Josephs, the Moses, the Esthers, the Sophie Shoals of the world, they all had some stuff in common. And I want to spend the next few minutes tonight talking to you about three things that you need. If you're going to be a troublemaker, if you're going to turn the world upside down, if you're not just going to be average, everyday, get-through-life Christian, 
but you're going to actually leave a legacy of faith and significance behind because of what God has done through you. These are what we need. The first thing we all need is an unreasonable vision. An unreasonable vision. A vision too crazy for others to go along with. You know, Joseph had his dreams of people bowing to him. David imagined he could slay the giant that a whole army was afraid of. Jesus endured a cross for a vision. Hebrews 12.2 says that he endured the cross for the joy that lay before him. That was the vision. He said, there's a joy ahead of me. I can see it on the other side of the cross, and that's going to give me the endurance, the strength, the conviction I need to endure it. And he went through the cross. He died on the cross for the joy set before him. What was the joy? What was the one thing he could only get through the cross that he didn't have before it? You and me, people. The one thing that could only be accomplished through that cross was the forgiveness of sinners. And he went to the cross for the joy, for you and for me and for your family and for your friends and for this world. He loves us and he went to the cross for that. That was what gave him the strength to endure, a vision. What gave Joseph the strength and the courage to endure prison, false accusation, betrayal? What gave David the strength to face Goliath? What gave Sophie Scholl the ability to face execution? I believe it was an unreasonable vision. They just had this, this idea of what the future could be if only someone would stand up for something. And they went for it. Scholl also said that what does my death matter if through us thousands of people are awakened and stirred to action? She had a vision. The vision was if only thousands of people could get hold of what we've gotten hold of, I'll die for it. Think about Elon Musk. I mean, he's as godless as it comes. But he can achieve unreasonable visions. I mean, it seems like everything he wants to try and do, he does. I mean, he's writing sci-fi in real life. Whatever you think about him, he's accomplished some pretty crazy things. Imagine what we could do with God on our side if we just said, you know, we've got a vision worth that and so much more. I believe, yeah, I remember being a 17 or 18-year-old, starting a youth prayer meeting with the dentist with Andy Carter, we asked our youth pastor, Ed, back in the day, can we start a prayer meeting every Sunday night? And what were we praying for? 20,000 young people to be saved. 20,000 young people to, to join the youth ministry. 20,000 young people to fill Deepdale and have worship services and change Preston and change Lancashire. Sometimes I find myself now praying that one person would get saved. Oh my God, just one. We need to rediscover an unreasonable vision. We need to get a hold of that big God-sized picture of what the future could be. On the 26th of February, we're going to take this service. We're going to go into Preston Town Centre. You're going to pay for parking and you're not going to complain because, <laughs> because, we're, because we're hiring Preston's biggest indoor venue that can fit 2,000 people in it and we're going to have church. We might feel a little lost. But the point is not how we feel. The point is look around. Even if we filled it 10 times over, we'd still only have a fraction of the people we need to reach if we're going to achieve the unreasonable vision we want to achieve. And so when you're in that cavernous place at Reaver on the 26th of February, looking around going, how on earth? You just say, God, unreasonable vision. I can pray for that. I can get behind that. But it's not just enough to have the vision. We also, number two, have to have an unreasonable commitment to it an unreasonable commitment to it. Anyone can write a vision. 
Anyone can have a dream. Anyone can set, set targets and goals at the start of the year. But you've got to put your money where your mouth is. You've got to hit, let the rubber hit the road. You have to start going after what it is that God has called you to accomplish. I was talking to a good friend this afternoon, talking about job applications. And they were telling me that we believe God's got great things in store for this person, but we're still going to apply for every single role and you know, get the CV working and send that off and work our connections. And we're going we're gonna to make it happen because we feel God's called us to pursue it. And I went, that's exactly right. You don't just sit on your hands and wait for God to do everything, right? That's called faithlessness, right? But actually we work because he's given us a vision to pursue. And you match those things together. And, you know, it's almost like God just giving you the key, but you still have to open the door. And so we have to have an unreasonable commitment to walk through the doors and go after it. You know, I don't know what was in King David's heart when he was just a lowly shepherd. I don't know if he dreamt of greatness. I don't know if he was waiting for his opportunity. I don't know if he imagined himself fighting battles and winning wars and winning territory for the nation, defeating giants. But I do know that he was faithful with what he had when he had it. He persevered in his training. He protected the sheep from the lion and the bear. When he was older, he knew God called him to serve Saul. And Saul was this insecure nasty, well, murderous king who kept trying to kill David, but David, because he was so faithful and he had this unreasonable commitment, he knew what God had called him, what Rick shared earlier, the vision hasn't come yet, but don't worry, it will. David understood that and he could have his unreasonable commitment, even to a king who was trying to kill him, to still serve because he wasn't going to push it in his own timing, but he was going to wait for God to do it. The disciples called as teenagers now, they had this unreasonable commitment too. You read about where Christ called them out of. They left careers, they left families, they left homes behind to follow Jesus. It was this unreasonable commitment to achieve the unreasonable vision. Joseph, I believe, had an unreasonable commitment. I mean, think about it. Accused by Potiphar's wife of a crime he didn't commit, falsely imprisoned for that, and he was so diligent in prison, so hardworking in prison, he started running the place. I mean, talk about having an unreasonable commitment. He wasn't going to let offense or crimes against himself be any excuse to not be uh, absolutely diligent and committed to whatever God had put in front of him in that moment. Sophie Scholl, I think she had this unreasonable commitment that led her to have this willingness to lay down her life for this cause. These were reportedly among the last words that she ever spoke. How can we expect righteousness to prevail when there is hardly anyone willing to give himself up individually to a righteous cause? Such a fine sunny day and I have to go. But what does my death matter if through us thousands of people are awakened and stored to action? That's Sophie on top. That's Hans on the bottom. This was before they were executed. She was able to walk to her execution. Such a fine sunny day. But what does it matter? My death, if it leads to a vision. And she had this unreasonable commitment to that vision. What was really, really amazing about all this is, you know, they've been printing these pamphlets and leaflets and delivering them all across Germany. Doing it in their, you know, in, with their group, with their networks, with their abilities. They get executed and these pamphlets get smuggled over here to the United Kingdom and get put in the hands of the Royal Air Force. And the Royal Air Force took them up into the sky and dropped 
hundreds of thousands of them across Germany. And so many people got to hear the message because of their sacrifice, because of their commitment. Countless reprints of them all across Germany just a few months later. I just believe God can use people who are willing to make an unreasonable commitment. And you might not see the fruit of it in your life. But that's the whole point of being a Christian is that your life doesn't end at the grave. But on the other side of it, you have eternity. Heaven is waiting for you. And everyone else gets to benefit here and now from the legacy we leave with an unreasonable commitment. You know, we look around at our heroes in life. You know, maybe in ministry or family or business or sports or whatever. You know, we all want what they've got, right? The question is, will we pay the price they've paid, right? Are we willing to make the unreasonable commitments and unreasonable sacrifices to lay down distractions or even good things to go after the one thing. You know, I heard of a young guy who struggled with an addiction to porn for years, and one day he had this revelation that if he was gonna beat this addiction, he had to get unreasonable about it. So I heard that he unplugged his computer, opened his bedroom window, and threw the thing out, and smashed it on the tarmac outside the house. And he was free. It was that unreasonable commitment. I'm not gonna let anything stop me from getting free of this thing. One pastor I know of found himself planting a church, knew nothing about churches or leading them, and his unreasonable commitment was to read a book a day. A book a day. I mean, he thought Pastor Ed could read fast. A read, he read a, a book a day and trained himself. He said, if I'm going to be entrusted with this, I'm going to have to read and study and learn and get the information I need to see God do what only he can do through me. Other heroes of the faith, they get up early and pray for hours every day. I mean, if you want what the average person has, do what the average person does, right? But if compelled by an unreasonable, God-sized, God-given vision, you're willing to make a set of unreasonable commitments, who knows what God can do? One of the things Mel and I have done, and I'm not putting this on you at all, but one of the things Mel and I have just done in our home is got rid of the TV. I mean, we still have one downstairs. Okay. Full disclosure, that's for football. <laughs> but our living room now yeah. is armchairs, yeah. community, and books. And we get the girls up there, and I was reading books. Yeah. Do you remember what they are? Yeah. To our children before they went to bed. And we're just making what this culture thinks is an unreasonable commitment to get rid of the TV. Uh, whatever it might be for you, but some of you might need to consider that. At least turn it off a bit more than you do now. Some of you might need to increase your giving. Some of you might need to get up earlier and seek God. Some of you just need to delete the video games from your computer. Use that time learning a skill. It's going to take an unreasonable commitment, right? It's going to take something that no one else will do. It's going to take stuff that seems unfair, unreasonable, too big a sacrifice, too painful to let go of, too hard to leave behind. But you'll never regret it because you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and everything else that you could ever possibly want or need will be given to you. Luke 14, 33 says, Jesus, every one of you who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. Doesn't mean you can't have them. Just means they can't have you. So the question is, what are you committed to? Are you committed? These aren't bad things, but that's why I'm using them as examples. Because these are things that Mel and I do. But are you, are you committed to them? 
Are you committed to saving for the family holiday? Are you committed to building the extension? Are you committed to watching, what is it now, The Last of Us each week when that comes out? You know, is that, the, is that nothing can mess with my you know, Friday night TV viewing? Are you committed to leveling your character on the computer game? Well, Jesus says, if anything has you more than he has you, it will be impossible to be his disciple. I just, I just know that you've got dreams that are bigger than that. I know you've got a vision that's bigger than that for your life, for your family, for your kids, for your business, for your ministry, for this church. I know you've got vision bigger than that. So I'm telling you, it's going to take an unreasonable commitment, doing stuff no one else will do. I look around and I, I joke about them, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm envious of them almost. People like Mark and, and Dave and Jason and these guys and, and John and James, who, who they've got the fitness thing down, right? They, they got this revelation and they just, it's an unreasonable commitment. I mean, that's what they have to do. It's like propping up Scottish salmon farming on his own with the amount of salmon he's got to eat. But the point is, it's going to take doing things no one else will do to get the results that only unreasonably committed people get. Worship team, why don't you join me? I, I just know you've got a sense that God wants to use you. You need an unreasonable commitment to the vision, but you also need something else. You need an unreasonable faith. You need an unreasonable faith. Uh, I was reminded recently of something a former pastor of mine used to tell me or used used to preach. He said, if you woke up one day and got everything you prayed for, what would your life look like? Would it just be your life that was changed or would the world be different? Pastor Ed this morning, one of his sub points was, the disciples they didn't just pray for the things that they wanted but they prayed that they'd have the boldness needed to proclaim his kingdom to proclaim his kingship they were they were saying god we need you to move and that was their prayer it wasn't this self-centered faith it was a faith that said if we're going to do this i need you on my side so what would your life look like if you got everything you ever prayed for would it just be your life changed Or would it be the world? Here's another question to add to that. If you knew that God was going to do that for you, would you have asked for more? You know, one of the things about getting older, I'm told, is that you learn more about uh, what can go wrong in life, right? You you learn, you know, the more, the more, sickness you see around you the more worried about sickness you can become the more you've had to endure financial difficulties the more concerned about financial things you can become right the more relationships have complications the more concerned about relationships when when you're 12 right you're not worried about life generally speaking but with experience with life can come this tendency towards worry and concern and if we're not careful we can become more risk risk averse in all the wrong ways in 2006, I was um, 18, don't work it out, and uh, I left home to head to Sydney, Australia um, to study. I, I didn't have an address for where I was staying, apart from Sydney Airport, I'm like, I'd get there probably. I didn't have an address, I didn't have half the information I'd be demanding now, right? I've got a wife and kids to look after. I need to know everything. I, I give me a phone number of the guy who's picking us up from the airport. I need to know the, the nearest you know, hotel if we get lost or delayed. Give me all the information. I need it all right now. Um, but I just had this kind of innocent naivety that came with being 18. 
I just didn't know what could go wrong. And so I got on the plane and trusted that God would sort things out. I got to Sydney and the Bible, this was a Sunday night, the Bible College shuttle bus didn't pick me up. They had 6 a.m. on their itinerary when I landed at 6 p.m. And uh, so I ended up calling Hillsong Church about 6.30 p.m. on a Sunday night. Well, guess where they all are? In church. No one's on the phones. So I slept in the airport that night. And for an 18-year-old, it's kind of a big deal. But I got on the train the next morning, turned up at the Bible college early, knocked on the door. The first person I met was the janitor. Um, she was lovely. Yeah, Mel remembers her. And, uh, and everything was fine. Right? Everything was fine. But it just made me, it's a small thing. It's a small example. Uh, but I just wonder what it would take if God called me to take a similar step of faith today. How much more would I want from him? How much more information? How much more um, confirmation? How much more clarity? How much more itinerary? How much more detail? How much more assurance would I need before I took a step of faith? And it just made me realize that I don't want to need that assurance. I've already got it. He's already in me. He's already with me. Holy Spirit fills me. I don't need to, I don't want to need the, the detail. When the disciples were called to follow Jesus, he didn't give them itineraries. He didn't give them a syllabus for the training program he was gonna take them through. He didn't tell them the details. He invited them to step out on a journey that required an unreasonable faith, an unreasonable trust in him. A faith that wouldn't make sense to those around them because they were pursuing something others didn't understand. A cause bigger than themselves, a purpose larger than this life, a vision that others couldn't see. Your unreasonable faith sees opportunity for God to move in the crisis. An unreasonable faith looks at financial worries and gives anyway. An unreasonable faith looks at uncertainty and takes a step anyway. An unreasonable faith holds onto the promises of God when all hell breaks loose and he seems far away. An unreasonable faith is expressed in praying prayers too big for man to accomplish. God-sized prayers, mountain-moving prayers. Jesus says in Mark 11, 23, he says, Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, listen, everything you pray and ask for, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Now I can tell you all the theology and all the small print and all the balance to that scripture. I can tell you that if a prayer doesn't get answered, there's a good reason. But I just want to go back to having a simple, unreasonable faith that takes God at his word and says, everything you pray and ask for, believe you've received it and it will be yours. I want to rediscover an unreasonable faith that pursues an unreasonable vision that requires an unreasonable commitment. A faith that asks for 20,000. A faith that seeks salvation every day of the week. A faith that expects God to move in power and not just emotional encounters. I want a faith that moves mountains. A faith that takes, that it believes for things that only God can do. Because if I can do it, you don't need it. But a faith that believes for God to do stuff that only He can do in my own life, in my marriage, in our family, in our church, in this world. And He's calling all of us to come on that journey. He's the same God. God is God. He doesn't change. And I believe there's some Josephs and Esthers and Davids and Moseses and Sophie Scholls in this room who are saying, God, 
I'll have the unreasonable vision. I'll have the unreasonable commitment. I'll have the unreasonable faith. You did it then, you can do it now. You're the same God then as you are now. You did miracles then, you can do miracles now. And we are gonna hold on to that truth and pursue that truth every day. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this message. If you've been impacted by it and would like to respond by choosing to follow Jesus, we'd love to help you to do that. One of our pastors would love to be in touch with you. Why not email response at valleychurch.eu or head to valleychurch.eu forward slash next steps to discover more. We're so excited for your future. Be blessed. Be blessed.